I am Rabbi Michael Pont, and this is For the Love of Judaism. I'm so excited today because I have with me Dr. Brian Portnoy, who is the founder of Shaping Wealth, and he is one of the world's leading experts on the psychology of money. He's written multiple best-selling books, including The Geometry of Wealth, and he has 20-plus years of experience as investor and educator in the hedge fund and mutual fund industries. He is a CFA charter holder and earned his PhD at the University of Chicago, where he lives. Uh, Brian, it is great to have you here. Welcome to the program. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, I guess everybody should know Brian and I have been friends for a long time since uh, we go way back to high school to our Jewish youth group. Uh, so we're rabbi and doctor, but we're also close friends. Yeah, I, w- I was wondering whether you were going to throw that in. Um, yeah, we've known each other for 37 years, maybe. Yeah, I think since we were about, what, 14, 15. And you officiated my wedding. I did. I did. I got to marry you and your beautiful wife, Tracy. Yeah, life is good. It's good to see you, my friend. Thanks. It's good to be with you. So let me ask you, Brian, how did you get into money and investing? Like, was there someone who influenced you to go into this field? The short answer is no. The The entry into the field was was really accidental because I'd started my career. Um, you and I both went to Michigan. I, you know, I graduated. I went to graduate school um, to study politics and sociology and economics and those sorts of topics and ended up doing a doctorate at the University of Chicago, but concluded after a bit of a stint in academia that it wasn't for me. So I was looking around for a job in my late 20s and very long and not at all interesting story short um there was an investment research firm in chicago called morningstar that i'm guessing some of your uh, listeners have heard of it's big investment research firm and the star rating and all that kind of stuff so yeah i went to work for them now 20 almost 23 years ago and that opened the door to the world of of finance. And, uh, you know, I, I found it fascinating as a career and there's been, uh, different, different stages uh, of that career. But the, the through line is, is that, um, we're trying to figure out kind of how to navigate money life in one way or another. So let's, so let's talk about that. So one of your books is called the geometry of wealth. Tell us about it. Why geometry and what, what's your book all about? Yeah. So, uh, it's my second book. The first book was um, called The Investor's Paradox. And there, so there's a field of, of study out there known as behavioral finance, which is a slightly fancy way of saying the psychology of money. Um, historically, money and finance was uh, an exclusively left brain topic. It's analytic, it's quantitative, it's based on spreadsheets. And, you know, there's been a tradition that's formed over the years to take seriously the right brain psychological dimensions to money, which is a very, very emotional topic. So I I wrote a, a book about making better investment decisions. And I walked away from that experience. I was very proud of the book I wrote, but it was a little kind of disappointed in the sense that I was left thinking, you know, there are more important questions than how to make buy a better mutual fund or, you know, choose a better fund in your 401k or 403b or whatever the vehicle is. And, and, And so 
I began to think and and write about the much bigger topic of where money fits into a meaningful life. And and that was a both a professional journey and also a personal one. Um, as you know, I've got three kids who are now, you know, uh, they're teenagers, two, two are away at college, one, one's in high school. But at the time, going back in, in, a number of years, I was just sort of watching them grow and thinking about the world that they were entering and how are they going to navigate the the money part of life? And so in, in a sense, I wrote The Geometry of Wealth uh, for them. It's books dedicated to them as an opportunity at some point, hopefully they'll read it to, to really answer that big question of where does money fit into a meaningful life? Other big questions, you know, that touch on money, such as, am I going to be okay? Are my loved ones going to be okay? How much is enough? Does money buy happiness? Though those bigger picture questions became very front and center for me. And and that ended up being the the geometry of wealth and 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 why, you know, as a short note, why geometry, I believe that uh simplifying uh, the complex, our very complex world is a is a noble effort, and I've taken sort of many steps and a fair bit of pride in my ability to kind of cut through a lot of the noise and and present more simple or simpler frames on what what money world is is all about. And so I put forth uh, three shapes: a circle, a triangle, and a square that led that that can help lead someone to what I call funded contentment. What I define as true wealth: the the ability to underwrite a life. That's meaningful to you. Um, I distinguish that from being rich, which is just the quest for more, which is psychologically fraught, and instead focus on true wealth or funded contentment. The circle, triangle, square, which represents our quest to define our purpose, and then our hope to set priorities, and then finally making a lot of day-to-day decisions are captured in the book through those three shapes. Say that again. The circle represents what? So circle, triangle, square, purpose, priorities, decisions. That's purpose, the answer okay. to the question of how do I achieve funded contentment? How 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 do I figure out where money fits into a, a, a meaningful life for me? It's a three-step process. One, um, you you step back and take the time to define what's truly important to you, your your purpose as well as your values. And the reason that shape is a circle is that we're sort of never done figuring it out. Um, We go round and around on these bigger philosophical and theological issues related to what what am I doing here? What what really matters? Not necessarily, quote unquote, normal terrain for money decisions, but I do think that's where this needs to start. And then the second shape, uh, priorities. Okay, once you've set, have some sense of what your prior, what your purpose is, then you go ahead and you set your financial priorities. And uh, there are three of them, in my view, hence the triangle. The, fir- the first thing we do is, uh, I call it protect, balance, reach. So our priorities are number one, to keep ourselves safe. And then number two, to find balance in our day-to-day life. And then number three, within the triangle, reach or thrive or aspire. So kind of keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. So the trial is kind of trying was kind of a Casey Kasem moment. I got you. I, I got the I got the reference. Yeah. Well, okay. You might have some younger viewers who have no idea what we're talking right. about in terms of right. dated cultural references. <laughs> um and then um the final step in the process for achieving funded contentment is just making all of the decisions that go into our day-to-day money life investing saving borrowing spending charitable giving money related to our our work life so the square gives four different pieces of advice 
for how to navigate making better decisions. So the circles have symbolic value. And each represents something very specific. They're not randomly chosen. And I, I think, you know, people like me who write and speak for a living on these issues of financial well-being owe it to our audiences to simplify a complex reality. So if you can remember circle, triangle, square, purpose, priorities, decisions, you have a leg up on answering some of the hardest questions that we are confronted with as human beings. Wow. Okay. So this is fantastic because when we were talking about this before the recording, like someone might hear, you know, financial investor, like someone who has your bio and just think, oh, okay, he's going to tell me how to invest my money. He's going to tell me how to get rich. That's you're saying that that's just a part, just one, one part of living a good life. And you're really focused on helping people to live uh, their best lives and how questions about money fit into that. Um, that's really that's really so refreshing that it's not just about the bottom line, that it has to be about, like you said, funded contentment, which in and of itself is is a great phrase to to unpack and to think about. The, just to, to jump in, like literally page one of the book makes the distinction between being rich and being wealthy. You know, being being rich is the quest for more. And we know that the quest for more puts us on sort of this treadmill in life where no matter how fast you sprint, you really right. don't get anywhere. Right. Um, and so I, you know, literally page one, I say this is not an effort. This is not a book or a program for how to get rich. This is a program or a framework for thinking about true wealth, which is, you know, ultimately what I think we all want to achieve. Right. You mentioned that you dedicated the book to your kids. And you and I both have kids, you know, in in college, looking to get out of college, starting their own professional lives. Uh, this is such an important lesson, I think, for parents in thinking about their kids that, you know, we we tend to put a lot of pressure on our kids that they have to, you know, get a good job and, you know, earn a lot of money. Your book is seeming to say that money is important. It's not that it's not, but there's so much more to life than just, you know, than just making money. I think it's a great message for for parents. Look, there, there, there's a really big problem that confronts basically all of us, which is that we don't like talking about money. And for the most part, we don't know how to talk about money. So if you look at kind of annual surveys from the American Psychological Association on sources of stress in Americans' lives, money more or less ranks number one every year. And right. by the same token, topics that you don't want to talk about, money ranks number one. So hard issues like marriage and divorce, family strife, politics, religion, those are more comfortable topics than money. And so we tend, all of us tend to lead secret financial lives. Uh, we, we are, as I sometimes say, we're, uh, we're alone together. Part of my mission in, in, in my writing and, and the company that I've built and, and, and run is to create an open space to actually talk about the things that we want to talk about, but aren't given permission and don't know how. And so as it relates to parents and kids, it's, I guess, relatively easy to talk about getting a job and making some money and, and saving versus spending, you know, the old mason jar strategy of, of spend, save, give, you know, which is 
by the way, a great, a great little framework to to teach younger, younger kids with what, right. what to do with their money. But the the bigger picture topic, you know, on this this area of true wealth, it, it's not really anything that comes up between parents and kids. It's actually not something that comes up between husband and wife or between adult children and aging parents. We tend to lack the vocabulary. Money is a language that no one speaks fluently. And part of what I'm trying to do with others who are committed to to this area is provide a vocabulary and a syntax to, to actually go have the conversations that matter. I got it. Yeah. As as we acknowledge, we've known each other for a long time. We we grew up in conservative synagogues, in United Synagogue Youth, a Jewish youth group. We went to Israel together, you know, back way back in the day. How do Jewish values influence your thinking about money? It's such a big question. And and I can't say that it's one that I've fully fleshed out. Um, but I will say uh, the the big fit thing for me is sort of how, how do we show up in the world and and how do we treat others? And in one way or another, I, I think the Jewish attitude toward community, the Jewish attitude toward charity and taking care of others has mattered to me deeply o- over the years. And What's been interesting a little bit is to sort of backfill the actual research in neuroscience and psychology that shows that like these are actually good things. These are healthy things. So so take, for example, you know, charity, um, philanthropy, we and 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 not just charity, but but gratitude. I'll bucket those together, even though generosity and, and, and gratitude are, I think, a little bit different. But gen- generally speaking, one of the quote unquote most selfish things you can do for yourself is to serve others. Because we know, you know, at the level of fMRI scans, that when you're doing things for others, you yourself benefit considerably. And so there's actually credible, rigorous research that sits behind sort of timeless or at least ancient Jewish principles related to how we ought to build a better world, take care of, you know, specific people with, with, within our community. Um, the connections are pretty direct. Yeah. And it, I mean, the Torah repeats again and again that we are obligated you know, take care of those who are vulnerable in our society. Uh, you know, the widow, the orphan, uh, the the stranger, um, and we're supposed to take care of them. You know, financially, the Torah says that specifically. You know, we have a tradition of tzedakah, of giving, as you said, charity. Our tradition bids us to give about ten percent of our wealth away to help others, to make the world a better place. By the way, also our tradition says we're not supposed to give more than 20%. We're not supposed to risk our own destitution, but we mm-hmm. are we are obligated to give uh, in the Jewish tradition. Uh, you know, the 10th commandment says, thou shalt not covet. And you talked about how you can just try to get more and more and more. And in part, what drives people to do that is that they want to have as much as the next person, but that, that, that's, you know, you'll just, you'll be a rat on a, on a wheel and it's just endless mm-hmm. because there will always be someone who has more than you. So it's almost, yeah. it's almost like a destructive 
force in terms of money and material wealth. So I don't know if this is our first controversial moment in this podcast, but I'll I'll hum- humbly suggest that the Tenth Commandment asks us to be somebody we weren't wired to be, because we 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 do covet. Um, it's part of our genetic wiring, and and why is that? It's because we have evolved over hundreds of thousands of years to uh, be social creatures. If there's if there's sort of a deepest truth about who we are as humans, it's that we are tribal. We are part of a group. And when I say tribal, I don't, I mean, small T tribal. I don't mean capital T political tribal, like, like we have now. But the fact is that belonging to a group, um, whether it be one other person or a hundred or, or a million others that has given us over the years, Number one, a sense of safety, physical safety, safety in numbers, so to speak. Uh, But it it has also given us uh, a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose. We, We look at the stories that get told about the groups that we belong to and we become attached in one way or another to to those stories. So we get both safety, but also meaning, which is more ethereal, but also quite real. We we get that from from the groups that we belong to. I'll stipulate all of that as being, you know, true. But then what follows is that what we do most of our lives is just sort of look around at what other people are doing. There's actually an, you know, substantial uh, research in ev- evolutionary psychology on the social purpose of gossip. G- gossip's been around since day one because we just want to know what everybody else is doing. So, like, you know, the Yenta is legit. <laughs> it, 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 you know, this is we just want to know what's going on, and it might sound trivial about what so and so is doing, but like th- this is this is part of who we are when we exist in groups as we do. In addition to all of the good things. We're also wondering to ourselves, well, are 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 others getting ahead? Uh, to put it the opposite, uh, am I falling behind? And we all have such a, a, a fine-tuned, instinctual sense for safety and danger that when we feel that we're falling behind or we're not living up to the standards that the group has for us, there's a bunch of neurotransmitters that are firing and we don't feel so good about ourselves. So, uh-huh. you know, to, to come back to, you know, d- don't covet, you know, don't, don't envy, you know, well, certainly that's a good aspiration and we can build discipline and habits and more broadly grow a perspective in which we don't want to do that. But I think it's really important to acknowledge that, you know, that disposition toward envy is is very is very normal. Um, one of the things that, you know, takes place, at least in my field of behavioral finance, is that, you know, we pathologize normal human behavior. So so money is very, very much an emotional lightning rod. We might think of it in terms of a balance sheet or an investment portfolio, but what it is is a lightning rod for every major emotion in our lives. Fear, greed, envy, hope, joy. You can go down the entire catalog of, of major emotions. Money triggers or is triggered by all of those. So doesn't mean that we have to sit 
in a, you know, a state of being where we're angry or envious or things like that. But I do think it's important for each of us to show each other, to each person to show him or herself grace in recognizing that, well, this is hard. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. Um, and I've often wondered and other scholars have wondered, well, how can the Torah legislate a feeling? Mm-hmm. How can we be commanded to not feel a certain way? Like you say, I mean, it's a, it's almost a natural human inclination to wonder about what other people are doing and wonder if we're doing enough, if we're falling behind. Maybe the idea is that, you know, we should try to achieve some kind of balance. We should look at what others have and that should motivate us to try to make our lives better if we feel that's necessary. But at the same time, you know, we should also look at what we have achieved, look at what we have, what we already have, and feel a sense of, you know, pride and comfort in that. Um, Maybe we should be doing both at the same time. In your work, you've written quite a bit about gratitude. How should gratitude impact our feelings about money? If treated deliberately, it should be central to the way we think about money life. You know, again, I I come at this and, you know, with who I have on my team at Shaping Wealth, we kind of have three levels of analysis, sort of the, the neurological, the psychological, and then the sociological. So sort of the brain, the mind, and then where, where we are in, 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 in society. And gratitude is another one of these practices that has evolved over our, you know, evolutionary span where just good things come from it. First of all, um, now we can see, uh, again, through neuroscientific research, that expressions of gratitude have a very healthy uh, impact on on our minds. We, we just feel good when we can say thanks, when we can express gratitude, uh, when we can send someone a note or, or a letter, or just in our own minds and in our heart, you know, sort of be grateful for the things that, you know, we we have and we do and for, for who we are. I think, and this ties to, you know, practice as well outside the world of money, we, we do see plenty of, you know, meditation and gratitude exercises around us now, you know, apps right. on our phone and things like that. Right. I think that our money lives grow much healthier when we can introduce gratitude practice into our other left-brained activities like budgeting or things like that. It's really powerful. It might sound small and trivial, but it's not. Gratitude practice in the context of our money lives is just about the healthiest thing that you can do because it does, I mean, connecting to the previous question and and, and comments that we were making, it can actually do some nice heavy lifting in terms of diminishing or ameliorating some of those feelings of envy that we might have. That's um, right. Yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty connected. Yeah, absolutely. Right. When you express gratitude, it does, you know, relieve uh, some of the envy that you feel because you feel grateful for, you know, for what you have and the many blessings in your life, I would think. It makes a big difference. And, and yeah. you know, I'd, I'd stress it well outside the confines of, you know, uh, financial decisions that we make. I, I think um, it, it seems intuitively true. And I think it's been scientifically proven that like expressions of gratitude make our lives that much better. Yeah, I mean, well, speaking of gratitude, Brian, I just want to thank you so much for being on the program today. Uh, it's great to reconnect. 
uh, yeah, this is a this is a, a treat to catch up with you and uh, just hear your you know hear your voice and it's it's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, everybody. That's Dr. Brian Portnoy, founder of Shaping Wealth. Check out his book, The Geometry of Wealth. Really, just great stuff. That if money is just one part of living a, a healthy, full, well balanced life. Um, really terrific. Dr. Brian Portnoy, thank you so much. Well, again, that was Dr. Brian Portnoy. And what a what an enlightening conversation. You know, as I said, I mean, we usually think about money and usually it's just like the bottom line that you think about. And Brian, Dr. Portnoy, is encouraging us to think of money in the context of our entire lives and how it can make us happy and lead to, as he said, funded contentment. You know, uh, we did talk about Jewish tradition, what tradition has to say about money and wealth. Um, there's one particular verse in the Torah that actually does speak to money that maybe you hadn't thought of it in that way before. I'm talking about Birkat Kohanim, the priestly blessing. The very first verse of the priestly blessing is one that's very well known uh, in English. You know, it's it says, may the Lord bless you. And keep you. In Hebrew, Yivarechacha Adonai Veyishmarecha. Rashi, the great French medieval biblical exegete, said that first word in Hebrew, Yivarechacha, may the Lord bless you, actually means may God bless you with material success. May God bless you with wealth. That's what Rashi says that means. But that's not where the verse ends. It's Yivarechacha Veyishmarecha. May God bless you and protect you. So if the first part is blessing you with material wealth, what are you, what's the protection part? Rashi says, may God protect you from having a bad attitude about your material success. And I think what Rashi means there is that may God protect you from, you know, the desire, the tendency to want to hoard all of your, all of your money and not share it with anyone else. May, may God protect you from, you know, being jealous about your money. Dr. Portner and I talked about that, of always looking to see what other people have, and then just wanting to get more and more wealth. And that's a never-ending cycle. And it's going to end in, in sadness, most likely, because you'll never be happy. So God should protect you from sort of these destructive feelings that surround us about money and material wealth. And Dr. Portnoy talked about that. We should feel grateful for our many blessings. We should share our wealth. Uh, it makes us feel good when we share our wealth. Our tradition actually says it's a healthy thing to earn money. It's healthy to, to, be, to be wealthy and that we should use it in ways that will make us happy and content, but we should not let money spoil us because that's just a path to sadness and ultimately to self-destruction. So. May the Lord bless you with material wealth, but may God protect you from having a negative, destructive attitude about the money that you make. That's all for this episode, everyone. I wish you well. I wish you success in everything you do, all of your endeavors. I'll see you next time. Peace out. Peace out. 